This morning, Pastor Tom is starting a new series called Also Starring. Come on, church, let's show Pastor Tom some love in the chat and let him know that we appreciate him. Well, good morning. Are we all glad to be in church today? Come on, can we make some noise for the good people at home? So glad you guys were able to be a part of the church with us. Um, I wanted to let you know there's something uh, next weekend, uh, something I'm very excited about, pleased that we were able to do. We are going to be having communion next weekend. So come on. I mean, this is an important part. It's an important expression of faith. um, And we've been able to work out a way to do it where it's all the safety precautions and the things we need to take into account. We're going to be able to do that. So uh, at home, get ready with whatever you need to get ready. Um, You know, you get some crackers, some juice, whatever you need. But we're going to partake in that together next weekend. So that is definitely not one to miss. And uh, I would like to echo uh, what Pastor Randy shared last weekend around, uh, obviously, the election is coming up. I'm sure that that's weighing on many people's minds in here. So um, uh, we want to encourage everybody to pray and fast that the Lord, you know, He is in control. And we can't rip that out of his control. He's got this. He's over it. He's sovereign. He's above it all. Um, And so, you know, as we get ready to, uh, you know, vote and be a part of the election process, let's make sure that, you know, we're turning to the Lord and we're saying, this is all in your hands. So let's continue in that prayer and fast. Is, Is that all good? All right, okay, I'm, I'm pleased that we're able to do that. Um, but as was mentioned in the video a few moments ago, I'm glad to be able to launch and kick off a new series today called Also Starring, um, dot, dot, dot. Today is the Pharisees, but Also Starring. The idea is uh, if you're like me and you're into uh, movies or books, uh, any kind of story, you have the main character. And of course, in the story of Jesus, he is the main character. He is the hero of the story. And then you have a number of other characters in there. You have the disciples. I mean, they're kind of like the supporting actors. And then you have, uh, you know, you have the bad guys, you have the villains. But then you have groups of people that help make up the story. And those groups of people move the story forward. They add something to the story. They help bring something uh, to our understanding. So, for example, in Star Wars, come on, somebody, you have Luke Skywalker. He's the hero. Um, You have, you know, you have, um, I was going to say Indiana Jones. That's not right. You have Han Solo. And then you have everyone else. But then you also have the Ewoks. And spoiler alert, they actually help rescue and save the day, but that's another story. Uh, and then you think the Wizard of Oz, you have, you know, you have Dorothy and you have Tim Man and the Lion, and, uh, but then you also have the Munchkins. You know, you have the Godfather, you also have the Five Families. Favorite movie, anybody, anybody? We're not here to talk about movies, are we? But nevertheless, in movies, you have these groups of people that help move the story forward. And for the, uh, the New Testament story, for the story of Jesus, there's mostly contained, if you look at the, the New Testament, about three quarters of the way through, you come to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four books of the Bible, they tell the story of the life and ministry of Jesus that happened around 2,000 years ago. And in those stories, in that story of Jesus, there are these groups of people. And our understanding of those groups of people adds something to the story. They add something to our understanding of the significance of the life-changing story that Jesus came, that he lived, that he lived a perfect life, that he paid for my sins, your sins on the cross. And by understanding these groups, we can enhance our understanding. So over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at different groups that pop up in the story of Jesus, in those four gospel books of the Bible, and considering how it can help us shape our understanding of the story of Jesus. Sound like a plan? 
Okay, well, uh, this week we are looking at the Pharisees, and so I'm just going to let you know, I'm going to be sticking to my notes a lot today because I don't want to get stuck on something and then have to skim over and rush something else for the sake of time, because I promise you, if I went through this in as much detail and as much passion as I would love to do it, if I camped out at every point that I would love to do, by the time we're done here, Chick-fil-A is going to be open again. So I'm sticking to the notes, so bear with me because there's a lot of good stuff in here that I really found as I was preparing this week and as I spent a few few moments digging in and doing some research that helped me increase my appreciation of the story of Jesus as we looked into this. So the, uh, the story of the Pharisees, uh, if, if you haven't read the New Testament, uh, if you've never spent any time looking into the Bible, this is not a word that we use today. It's not a group that's still around today. Um, and so there really is, we, we come to the Bible almost blind with no idea about who these people are. But if we look at the first sign of this group springing up, you have to go all the way back into the Old Testament. And so the Old Testament is the portion of the Bible that was written and was about events that happened prior to the birth of Jesus. And so you have to go all the way back. And if you really look at it, um, about 200 years before, uh, before what was the, uh, a massive event in the Old Testament of the exile. And so this is about 800 BC. Um, God started to rise up and raise up prophets that would come and would give the truth, sometimes an unpopular truth, to the Old Testament people of God. So the Old Testament people of God, Israel and Judah, they were far away from God. Their hearts were away from him. They were getting into idolatry. They were abandoning their faith. And starting with Elijah, God raised up these prophets that would come and say, y'all got to turn this around. Your hearts are far from me. You're not following me. You don't care about me. You're following other gods. You're a little bit of me, a little bit of someone else. No, you all need to turn your hearts around. And God raised up these prophets. And for 200 years, these prophets would come and they would say, you've got to turn this around. You've got to turn your hearts towards God. You've got to turn your hearts towards God. And for 200 years, these prophets would say, if you don't turn back to God, it's going to get really, really bad. And for 200 years, the people of God, sometimes they would a little bit, but really they never turned back to him. And so after around 250 years, God said, okay, okay. And the Babylonians, who was a major empire at the time, around 600 BC, approximately 600 BC, they stormed into Jerusalem, they conquered the city, and they took around 15% of the Jewish community in Jerusalem at the time, and they took them to Babylon. And the reason they took them to Babylon is they took about 15% of the community. They took them to Babylon. The idea was, is that if Jerusalem is going to be a part of our empire now, the people that live there need to live like us. So we're going to take 15%, the most influential. We're going to take the nobles, the wealthy, the people who are the religious leaders, the political leaders, the key movers and the shakers. We're going to take them to Babylon, about 700 miles away, which, by the way, they traveled on by foot. So walking from Jerusalem to what is now modern-day Iraq on foot for over a month. And they did this journey with the idea being that you're going to get yourself to Babylon. We're going to re-educate you. We're going to re-indoctrinate you. We're going to teach you to think like us, be like us. Then we're going to send you back. And then Jerusalem is going to be a part of our empire. And if you think about the biblical story, there are a number of characters that lived and breathed and worshipped God while in Babylon. Daniel and his three friends were one of them. So if you know the story about Daniel and, you know, he wanted to attempt to be thrown into the lion's den, his three friends are thrown into a fire because they weren't worshiping gods. They weren't a part of the re-indoctrination process. And so this was the point was that you get people there, you retrain how they think. And by retraining how they think, they will then help us expand and solidify the empire that we've set up. And after around 70 years, 
of this community of Jewish people being held in captivity, being taken from their home, kept in Babylon, they were sent home. And in the Old Testament, that's what the story that takes place in Ezra and Nehemiah. But two things, two key things happened while they were in captivity, while they were in exile, while they were in Babylon, that help us bring this understanding of the synagogue. The first thing is, is they, they renewed their devotion to God. God said, if you don't get this together, something bad's gonna happen, the something bad happened, and the people of God responded with, okay, we really need to turn this around. There was a renewed devotion to God. And the other thing is that the focus shifted from the temple towards studying of the scriptures. Now, if you know the Old Testament, if you've read any of it at all, and I'm aware that there's a number of us here today that haven't, those of you online, you may not have spent a lot of time looking into the, uh, the Old Testament, but there's a whole system of worship, uh, of coming together, as a whole life of devotion that was centered around the physical building of the temple. But here they are in Babylon, the temple's 700 miles away, and they don't have the option to go back and renew their worship. And so they then turn their attention to the scriptures. And there is a, we start to see a rise in what would become known as the synagogue. The synagogue was born in exile. It was born in captivity, where it was, we need to get back to God. How can we get back to God? We can't go back to the temple because there's no temple here for us to get back to. Okay, we need to get back to God by digging into the scriptures, and we need to find him there, and we need to find obedience to him in the scriptures so that we don't end up back in a place like this ever again. And then the rabbi came out of that movement. Synagogues and rabbis were born in exile as a response to, we want a renewed devotion to God and we never ever want to find ourselves back here again. In fact, the word synagogue and rabbi never crop up in the Old Testament. If ever you're doing a Bible trivia competition, I just gave you a freebie. But around the second century BC, so fast forwarding a number of years now, the Jewish people have been given permission to go back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. But fast forward to the second century BC, there's more political upheaval. We start to see the influence of the Greeks and the Romans taking over the ancient world at the time. And there was a newfound political pressure that came on the Jewish people. And a few factions, a few sects of Judaism start to spring up. You'll read about some of these in the gospel, uh, in the story of Jesus, the Sadducees and the Essenes. Uh, they sort of are some that spring up. But the Pharisees appear to be the most popular and the most influential of these groups to spring up in this political upheaval. Uh, keep in mind, the motivation has shifted. There's been a renewed passion, a renewed desire to get back to serving God. There's been a renewed commitment to we got to get in the scriptures. we got to get in the scriptures and find obedience to God in this because we don't ever want to find ourselves back in this place ever again. And what distinguished the Pharisees from everyone else was that unwavering commitment and that unwavering devotion to the scriptures that began hundreds of years earlier in the exile. And the whole point was that they would be separated, that the Pharisees said, we need to be distinguished from the Greco-Roman world around us, from the influential that's happening from the Romans and from the Greeks. We need to be distinguished from that. And it grew to be that we also want to be distinguished from the, our fellow Jewish people who aren't following the law as closely as we are. But the most important thing for them was that they, they, they adhered to the law and they believed that's how, that was the key to finding God's blessing on them. They had zero tolerance for breaking the, root, uh, the food laws as listed in the Old Testament. They had zero tolerance for breaking the Sabbath so that they could distinguish themselves from people that weren't following God wholeheartedly to make sure that everybody knew, no, we are following God wholeheartedly because we never ever 
want to find ourselves outside of God's blessing, outside of God's protection, outside of God's favor ever again. And then you fast forward to the time of Jesus. And uh, um, many years ago, uh, I used to sell insurance. Um, It was the squarest peg in the roundest hole. But Nevertheless, uh, I did sell insurance, and one thing I found is that I went to do, um, yeah, you have to get a license to sell insurance. You can't just, you know, sell insurance because you feel like it. You need a license that's issued by the state, and to do that, you have to take a number of exams. And so one thing, uh, as I was studying for the exam, the person that I was working with said to me, okay, you have to pass the test, but once you pass the test, you can forget everything that you learned. And what they meant by that was that the state law may say one thing, But every insurance company has another set of rules that you have to go by. So for instance, it may say in the state law that people have up to 30 days, at least 30 days for them to be able to file a claim, but then the insurance company may say, you know what, we're gonna give people 60, but it fits within the state law. In the same way that if I had a babysitter come over to the Woodhouse and uh, watch the three kids, um, pray for them if that happens. But if someone comes over to our house to watch the kids and we say to them, hey, the kids need to be in bed by nine, and the babysitter says to the kids, y'all are going to bed by 8.30, that's fine with me. They're working within my rules. I said nine, they say 8.30, that's fine with me. The state says 30 days, the insurance company says 60 days, that's fine. You can modify the rules as long as it stays within the broader rules. So the Pharisees, by the time that Jesus came along, they'd become somewhat of an official sect. It was a known sect of Judaism that had sprung up. And not only had they embraced the rules, but they'd put rules within rules to make sure that they never, ever get close to breaking the rules. And I I went through and I I did a a quick skim through the the New Testament uh, this week. And here's a number for me to let you share with. The first one is they strained their water in case bugs got in there. Because if you eat a bug, who knows what's going to happen? They didn't spit on the Sabbath because apparently if you spit on the Sabbath, it would cause some dust to spring up and that was considered work. They tithed even on their herb gardens. Can you imagine bringing that suggestion to the trustee board? They might like it, I don't know. Anyway. They had a special method of cleaning their hands before eating. They would get together and debate the intricate details of the Old Testament. They were very public about their faith, often praying loudly in the streets for everyone to see. They were honored at banquets and synagogues. They made the big decisions about how to run the synagogues and what was acceptable and unacceptable within the synagogues. They were the people who you and I would go to for understanding about morality and ethics. The key here is that they were better than you. They were better than you. They were the best of the best. There is nobody that could make a rational claim that these people were less godly than you. They are definitely better than you. Now let me read this, Matthew 5, 18. I tell you the truth, this is Jesus speaking. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees will have loved that teaching. You got to obey the law. Every, even the minutest detail, y'all got to stick to it. Don't waver on this. You've got to be so obedient to the law. They're starting to think to themselves, we kind of like this Jesus guy. 
I mean, they had some problems with John the Baptist, but this Jesus guy is making sense. Okay, we're, we're tracking with this. This is good. But he goes on, verse 20. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The response would have been stunning on both the Pharisees and the crowd. Jesus is saying that to be a part of the kingdom that he is initiating here on earth, you have to be better than the best. You don't have to be pretty good. You have to be better than the best, but the Pharisees had convinced themselves and the world around them that they had it figured out, that they were the holiest, that they had God's blessings, and they had no idea just how wrong they had it. And as Jesus' life and ministry continues, we see that the Pharisees, they continue to lie and scheme and take him out. And essentially, the Pharisees become the villains of the story. And they lied and they schemed and they manipulated. They bribed Judas. They lied to Pilate and they demanded that Barabbas be set free, ultimately to getting Jesus onto the cross. But even if we don't have official Pharisee groups set up right now, it's a thing of the past. Sadly, the Pharisee mindset can still be present today. Now, the Pharisee mindset is, you know, you can either obey God because you love him and trust him or because you believe that God won't love you or accept you until you've got it all figured out. The outcome can be very different with these two approaches. If you come to God and say, okay, God, I'm trusting you, I'm obeying you, I'm doing what you say to do because I love you, because I trust that this is the best thing to do for my life, it can look very similar. The outcome can look very similar. The habits that you pick up, the decisions that you make can look very similar to somebody that's decided, God, I'm obeying you because this is the right, this is what I'm going to do. And if I don't, I'm going to get absolutely smacked around. The outcome can look very similar, but it sounds, feels, and smells very, very different. And of all the words uh, that Jesus shared in the New Testament, I'm going to share what, um, by my estimation, is probably the sternest uppercut he gives in the New Testament. It's Matthew 23. It's uh, the chapter is where he gives the Pharisees an absolute pounding. And I'm not going to read all of it, but if you have time this afternoon, um, it's a depressing read. But it does show the heart of God towards humanity. So I'm going to skim over a a few of these that just paint the picture of how Jesus responded to the best of the best. Matthew 23. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. Hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell. You are yourselves. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you, for you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts of the altar is binding. How blind? Hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the Lord, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so that you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. 
Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. And one of the key words, amen. One of the key words that leaps out to me as I sort of read through that is the word blind. Blind, they have no idea, no idea the how far they are from God. They're working so hard to do everything right, to keep all the tick boxes ticked, to do everything they need to do to earn God's favor, to win God's favor. They're doing it all right, and they're doing it so much that they've become blinded to the reality that they are doing it all wrong. They are blind. And the horrible reality is that this can happen to Christians today. We can be completely blinded to the fact that we have taken on some of that Pharisee mindset. Now let me just uh, hold, on for, hold on for a second here. I, I want to talk to this half of the room. Um, guys, this message is not for you. Okay, I, I'm talking about these people over here, okay? Like, I, just, I want you guys to feel okay as you sat there. We're not, we're not talking to you right now, okay? This is for these people over here. Excuse me a second. Now I want to talk to you guys for a moment. This message isn't for you guys. This is for those people online. Okay, this, those people, online, they need to hear this message. You, you guys are good, okay? You guys are fine. Uh, online, um, this isn't for you. This is just for those people in this room right here, okay? Like, don't worry. This is just for the people in this room. Pretty much the only person that doesn't need this message is me, all right? I don't want to make eye contact with Megan right now, so I'm not going to look in that direction. But come on, we're all in this. We're all in this, I'm telling you. If we are not wise to the enemy's schemes in this, this will come into our lives, this will take root, this will start to shape our hearts, shape our faith, if we're not intentional around it. If nothing else from today, I hope that you leave here with your eyes wide open that if I don't pay attention to this, if I don't pray against this, if I don't ask for people to speak into my life against this, this can very, very easily come into your life, dig into your heart, and shoplift your faith from you. This is a threat that every single believer has to reconcile with. And the first thing that I ask you to write down if you're taking notes is that blind Pharisees can't see the damage they cause. Blind Pharisees can't see the damage they cause. And there's a, a lot of crossover with um, what we're talking about this week and what we're going to talk about next week. So if it feels like I'm rushing through the next section of what we're talking about, I promise we're going to expand on some of these thoughts next week. Next week, we're talking about tax collectors and prostitutes. I'm excited. It's, I, I'm, I, I really, I, I got some ideas that hopefully are going to be a blessing, but that's next week. But so if we go through this quickly, please don't feel that we're rushing through stuff. We're going to come back, but there are four blind spots. Continuing the idea that the Pharisees are blinded to the damage that they're causing in their life and the lives of people around them. Four blind spots I want to hit on. The first one is self-reliance. Self-reliance. Uh, my, uh, my son Moses, uh, he's seven. He's incredible. And this summer he learned to ride his bike. All three of my kids learned to ride the bike this summer. But it's not the strangest thing in the world for the chain to pop off his, uh, for the chain to pop off the, spoke, you know, off the wheel and have to go fix it. And one time I had to get a wrench out and start really taking the bike apart to fix it properly. And Moses wanted to come and fix it. And so, Moses, and so I'm so like, Mo, let me do it. Let me do it. He's like, no, no, no. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. So I'm like, fine. You think you can do it, wise guy. Go at it. So he gets his right, and he's obviously he doesn't get it right. But you know, it, it's exactly the same thing with this self-reliance that the Pharisees have. 
It's exactly the same thing. It is that here we have, you know, when we read in Matthew 5.20 that to be followers of Jesus, to be part of the kingdom, our righteousness needs to be better than the Pharisees. The expectation is, is that when we hear that, we say, I can't do that. When Jesus says, for you to be a part of the kingdom, your righteousness needs to be better than the best, the expected response from people is, I can't do that. Moses, fix your bike. I can't do that. I need your help. When Jesus says, if you want to be a part of this thing, you've got to be better than the best, and we say in response, I can't do that. Jesus responds with, I know I'm going to do it for you. And on the cross, his righteousness became our righteousness so that we could take our place in the kingdom. Next thing I'd ask you to write down is, we won't be comfortable receiving grace until we're uncomfortable faking perfection. We won't be comfortable receiving grace until we're uncomfortable faking perfection. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, halfway through the verse. My grace, this is Jesus talking to Paul, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So when Jesus says we have to be better than best, he's not saying now go figure it all out. He's saying, once you get to the point where you're coming to me with your weakness, then I can step in and my power starts to work in your life. You know, you might, uh, you might not be able to perform as well as the Pharisees, but having a heart towards God, it's unbelievably easier than the Pharisees. The Pharisees did not have a heart towards God. They did not have a desperation for him to help them. So when Jesus says, be better than the best, He's not talk, can't possibly be talking about performance, but he's talking about the heart towards him. The heart towards him, and to be better than the best in that regard, it is unbelievably easy. I'm gonna move right along. The second thing, second blind spot of the Pharisees is they are fueled by comparison. Fueled by comparison. And there's, a, there's an ancient word, I'm unsure of the language that this word's come from, um, but it's yebethe. Yebethe. And so it's a word that's used to describe comparisons that we still use today. So for instance, did you hear, you know, did you hit your brother? Yebethe called me names. Did you eat all the cookies? Yebethe had more than me. Did you park illegally? Yebethe go 15 over the speed limit. Did you lie to your boss? Yebethe cheat on their taxes. And this word yebethe, it has crept in to our culture. Yebethe, yebethe. Hold on, hold on. You got some responsibility. You got some weakness to bring to the table. Oh, hold on. but yebethe. Pharisees lived for that stuff. Yebethe. The quickest way to feel better about yourself is to judge other people. The Pharisees found that out firsthand. The quickest way to feel better about yourself is to judge other people. I'm moving on. I, I really wish we had time to talk more about this. Next week, we'll dig in. Third thing, burden on others. Blind spots, the burden that they placed on others. Matthew 23, 4, they crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Now let me say this, if, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus and you're a Christian, you've made that decision that you're going to follow him and live a life of faith, I'm going to say something that I hope is, is somewhat of a challenge, but also an encouragement. 
that saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to being a role model. Saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to being a role model. When the Lord gave the Great Commission, he didn't give it to a select few. Saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to being a role model. People will see the grace that changes you and wonder if God will have the same grace for them. They will also watch your best Pharisee impersonation and question whether that's what God demands of them. People will observe grace at work in your life and get hope that they can experience that themselves. Or they will see Pharisee impersonations coming up left and right and they will start to wonder, is that what God demands of me before he ever engages in a relationship with me? Do I need to do all of that for God to love me? And that is exactly what the first century Pharisees did. And the whole shtick, you know, communicated that God won't love you until you're as awesome as me, and you can never be as awesome as me. If we believe that, then the love of God is completely out of reach. And as we read the story of Jesus, as we read the Gospels, we see that there are many, many people who believed that lie. And because Jesus corrected that lie, they wanted him dead. The fourth thing, driven by fear. Driven by fear. First thing was self-reliance. They were fueled by comparison. They were a burden to others and they were driven by fear. We, we go back to where I started by sharing a little bit of the history of the Old Testament and the exile that happened. I mean, the whole city of Jerusalem was ransacked. They lost a battle and a whole bunch of people were kidnapped and driven away from their homes. I mean, it was in 587 BC. And the terror that this might happen again drove the Pharisees. No, we have to be obedient. We have to be obedient. We have to be obedient. If we're not, bad things are going to happen. If, if we mess up, if we put a foot wrong, who knows how bad the smackdown is going to be. So we, we got to keep it. We got, they were driven by fear. See, fear pushes us to self-reliance. Love pushes us to grace. Fear pushes us to self-reliance. If we have a fearful view of God that if we put a foot wrong, if we put a toe where it shouldn't go, then the smackdown is coming, then that fear will push us to self-reliance to make sure that we're as cleaned up as we feel we need to be to come to him. But if we know and we believe that God loves us and there's nothing we can do to change that, that pushes us to seek more and more of his grace that we've already heard today is where he works best in our lives. I'm going to celebrate with a drink break. I did that smacking thing that you hate so much, Megan. I'm sorry. All right. Romans 2.4. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does that mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That is the best motive from leaving whatever junk behind that we need to leave behind, whatever sinfulness needs to be done with, it is not in response to a fear from God, but it is we find God being as loving and as kind and as generous and as over-the-top loving towards us. That is the motive that Paul highlights here. That is what's going to get you to turn from your ways. It is not the anger of God. It is the love of God. It is his kindness that is intended to turn you away from your sin. And those four things, those four blind spots again, 
self-reliance, fueled by comparison, burden on others, driven by fear. I want to read to you this parable real quick. Luke 18, verse 9. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And we see in this short parable that Jesus shared the the self-reliance of the Pharisee. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. We see him lost in a comparison. I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, and adulterers. We see the burden that he puts on other people that you need to be more like me. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. That tax collector needs to be more like me. He needs to be as amazing as I am. And then when it comes to fear, I want you to imagine with me, with that story, imagine how broken this Pharisee would be if he had to swap places with the tax collector. If the Pharisee was the one that was stood at a distance and did not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed, instead he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. Imagine how intimidated this Pharisee would have been to approach God with that level of honesty and brokenness. I mean, it would have upended his entire understanding of who God is. But Jesus concludes the parable, verse 14, I tell you this sinner, not the Pharisee returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Will be exalted. You know, there's some good news in the New Testament. There were a number of Pharisees that got it. They got the message of Jesus. It cut through the hard hearts that they'd built up. It cut through the lies that they believed. It cut through the mentality and the mindset that they had taken on board. One of them was uh, Nicodemus, the man that goes to see Jesus in John 3. Uh, we get the famous John 3:16. Nicodemus becomes a believer, and possibly the most famous example of all is Paul the apostle. Paul, fierce Pharisee, extremely confident in his own ability, extremely confident in his own awesomeness, has a complete turnaround. Powerful, powerful account that we read about in the Bible. But Paul, he writes a letter um, as he starts his leadership responsibilities and he starts being sent by the churches to go and tell the good news all around the known world at the time. Paul writes a letter to a bunch of churches in, a, in an area called Galatia. It was somewhat of a circular letter, but the churches there were having Pharisees come and tell them, no, you need to carry some of our burden. Y'all need a little self-reliance in your life. Uh, No, come on, like look at everyone else, have some comparison. You you guys need to get some things figured out in here. And Paul has to write a letter bringing correction. Now as we read this, keep in mind, this is not someone that grew up far away from God and then later in life found God. This is someone that was a Pharisee and is recovering from that Pharisee mindset. Galatians 5.22. But the Holy Spirit a relationship with God, having the Holy Spirit at work in your heart and in your life. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's the best bit. There is no law against these things. If you've got God at work in your heart, if you've got the Holy Spirit cleaning up the junk in your life, the good things of God are going to start pouring out and coming out of you. And they're going to start overflowing in your life. This will be the fruit. This will be the natural consequence of your life. And if you want to start throwing laws and rules and legalism out of it, it has no place because this is the Holy Spirit just at work. If you're focusing on that, there's no law. It's taken care of. It's done. And the Pharisees had such a strong devotion to the scripture, but they obviously missed this one. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, And I will give them, this is God's promise to his people, I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them, just like we read about. It came to pass. I will take away their stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart so they will obey my decrees and regulations. Then... They will truly be my people, and I will be their God. Amen. You can go ahead and clap. I'm going to take a water break at home if you guys want to have a quick moment. This mentality, it's awful how easy it just sneaks in. I mean, truly awful. Just comes in the back door, takes root starts teaching us, you got this. The self-reliance starts to come up. We start to trust our, our holy habits a little more than we should. We start to compare ourselves to the people around us and well, you know, I mean, I got some stuff, but you know, there's a little bit of, you know, yeah, but they. It starts to come up a little bit. We start to live driven by fear that if I put a foot wrong, God's blessing's not gonna come. God's not gonna answer my prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be out of his will. I'm gonna be out of his favor. And so our relationship with him is founded on fear instead of the grace that he's so, so delighted to share with us. It is freakish how quickly it creeps in. And for the people around us, the people that don't know God yet, the people who haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, if that's what they're seeing in our lives, I don't even have words for how turned off I would be if that was me. Why would anyone sign up for that? Terrified of God, terrified that if they put a foot wrong, driven by a list of rules, why would anybody sign up for that? And then you have Jesus step in and say, no. My power works best in weakness. My power works best in your brokenness. When you come to me with honesty and humility and you say, here's my mess. Lord, I want tomorrow to be better than today. Lord, I want this time next year for me to be closer to you, for my heart to be cleaner than it is right now. That is the message that Jesus died for. A few questions for you. Maybe you have a chance this week just to think and maybe even be brave enough to ask people around you, hey, what do you think about this? But the first one is, has some Pharisee mentality crept in? Has some Pharisee mentality crept in? Are you driven by comparisons to justify yourself? Do you, do you celebrate them, you know, you know, your good behavior more than the fruit of the Spirit coming out of your life? Do you ever find yourself thinking, God, you owe me. I behaved so well, you owe me. Have you forgotten just how much you desperately need the grace of God, not just when you mess up big time, but every single day? Um, second question, 
What burdens do you need to let go of? What burdens do you need to let go of? What weights have you picked up? What Pharisee behaviors have you picked up? What are you doing just out of duty? What are you doing just out of fear that if you don't, God's gonna smack you upside the head? What self-reliant mindsets have you taken on board? What pressures have you accepted that God would never want you to feel? Has some Pharisee mentality crept in? And what burdens do you need to let go of? And my, uh, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, and there's a whole story behind why this is my favorite verse that I'm not gonna get into right now. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is in Romans 5.8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. God showed his great love for us <laughs> by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. How do I know God loves me? How do I know God loves me? Because while I was sin a sinner, Christ died for me. How do I know God loves me? Because on my very worst day, when I was at my lowest point, when I was pushing God away with the most ferocity, when I was actively running away from Him, when I wanted nothing to do with Him, while I was shoving God out of the picture, while I was left to my own devices, that is when Christ died for me. It wasn't when I started to get my act together. It wasn't when I tried to behave myself. It wasn't when I tried to get myself figured out. It was when I was at my absolute lowest, Jesus died for me. And the good news is, it wasn't just for me. It was for anybody and everybody that would say, God, I trust you, I believe in you. I want to live in the grace that you made possible. And if you're here today and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, I wanna let you know that 17 years ago, I made that decision and it is easily the best decision I have ever made. I'm not gonna lie to you. I'm not gonna tell you that in 17 years there've been no ups, no downs, there's been plain sailing, there's been ups, there's been downs. But friend, I have never, not once, regretted my decision to follow Jesus. And you may be here today and maybe something from today's service, maybe something in one of the worship songs that we sang, maybe some of the Bible verses that I shared, something got you and you thought, you know what? I'm not following God, but I wanna start. I would love to pray with you. And we're not gonna do anything weird. We're not gonna do anything to embarrass anybody. We're not here for you to, you to feel awkward in your seat. But I believe, I know from my experience, and you talk to many people in this room, they'll share their experience with you. If you pray a prayer like this, things start to change. You say a simple prayer saying, God, I wanna follow you. I wanna heal my relationship with you. Things start to transform. So I'm gonna pray a simple prayer and I invite you to pray and repeat after me. Everyone in the room online, I invite you to be a part of this. Pray along with us. And I'm gonna believe that if you're praying this for the first time, things are gonna start looking different for you. So come on, everybody, let's pray this together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we please celebrate?
If you made that decision today and you prayed that prayer believing that life was gonna change for you, I wanna invite you, if you're online, click the button, let somebody know that you raised your hand and one of our team is gonna help you figure out if there's a way we can help you in a next step. If you're in the room and you prayed that prayer for the very first time, I'm gonna ask you, don't leave here without letting somebody know. Just grab, you know, I. James and Annie, they're going to give you a chance to figure out how to do that. But don't leave here without grabbing somebody at least and saying, hey, when that British guy was talking, it made sense. I want to start figuring out what following God looks like. But I am so glad I was able to come share something. Word of Life Church, I hope something was helpful and a blessing to you online. So glad you guys checked in. God bless everybody.